Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm here with the stars of our show, Mark Wiley and Will George. A day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. I want to thank our subscribers before we hand it over to, to Mark to do the intro to our guest. We just thank our 14,000 faithful subscribers. We hit over that mark today. Uh, we're, we're very thankful for your support. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. It allows us to, to bring you great content every week and to serve our mission to try to build a better baseball IQ for our audience. We are now in over 70 countries. I uh, didn't even know there were 70 countries, to be honest with you. 70 countries, grassroots, all the way up to major league front offices. We're being passed around at the World Baseball Classic right now, spring training. So um, thank you so much again. Continue to follow us streaming on your, whatever your favorite device is, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. And you can engage us on social media. Instagram and Twitter, and then Facebook. Guys, we received over 500 questions today with our two guests. Uh, we had two shows today, and I got back to one online live, and then I get back to everybody privately. So uh, with that, we've got a, a tremendous, tremendous guest. He and I got to meet yesterday a little bit pre-show. Uh, but with that, I'm going to hand it over to you, Mark, to introduce our guest today. Well, I'm really happy to, to uh, introduce Steve Luber. Uh, longtime friend. We've been friends since probably the second year I played, so it was over 50 years ago. Um, long time. He's been my roommate uh, in different organizations on different teams. We've played in three different organizations together, uh, coming up through the minor leagues. So this is really a treat for me to have Steve on so we can reminisce. And I think you'll be really pleased to hear uh, some of his insights uh, in the game um, in a lot of different facets. Um, Steve was drafted by the Minnesota Twins in 1967. You know, it took him four and a half years in the minor league system before he got to the big leagues the first time in 1971. Uh, <clears throat> again, in 76, he played for the Twins, um, went to, the, to uh, the Chicago White Sox, uh, went to the Toronto Blue Jays in 1979 in the, in the big leagues, uh, in 1980, he was with the Orioles, and in 81, he was in the big league club with the Orioles. So he's been with four different major league teams. Um, vast, vast minor league uh, uh, career. Um, even played in the senior baseball league, which didn't last long, but it was an interesting senior baseball league for veteran players um, in 1989 and 90. Uh, Steve's career, he was uh, 138 and 106 in the minor leagues, um, 285 starts, 11, 111 complete games, 26 shutouts. Um, major leagues, he pitched in 66 more games, 24 starts, two more complete games. So totaling for his career of, uh, I got uh, between 22 and 24 years. I don't know how you want to figure. You can probably fill us in on that. It was 476 games, 309 starts, 2,373 innings, 113 complete games, and 27 shutouts. So there's not a lot of people in professional baseball that have pitched over 2,300 innings in, a, in their careers. And that doesn't count instructional league, winter league, 
and the senior professional league. So, you know, you could probably jack that up even higher. Um, he went into coaching um, in 1987. Uh, he spent 35 years in 17 different cities uh, as a pitching coach in the minor leagues uh, with the, Ori- with the uh, Padres, Orioles, Texas, Marlins, and Royals. Uh, he was a roving pitching coach from 94 to 97 with the Rangers and then coached in the fall league in, in 98, 90, in 2007 and 2008 in the Arizona fall league. Um, he's, he's familiar with championships. He knows what it takes to be a champion. He's been with nine championship teams, including the, the uh, he was in the Royals organization when they won the 2015 world series. Um, we're welcoming Steve. Thanks so much for being on. I think you're going to have some really big impact on our listeners. Um, I'm glad to be here. I mean, we like we always like talking baseball forever, back in the day and all the way through. And uh, you know, we we've always had a finger on the game, and and uh, you know, we like a lot of things we've seen over time, and some things we haven't liked, and uh, but uh, it's, we still have the love for the game that uh, people probably can't match anymore. Yeah, you know, we like you said, we used to have some after the games in our room, we'd get some takeout and we'd sit there and, and talk baseball till late, late hours of the night um, when we were roommates. So, you know, I know where your brain is. You were always like unbelievably organized. You always had your list every day for what you needed to accomplish. And those are things that people, very few players ever did back in the day. And it doesn't surprise me that you're like a really good coach because, you know, with the responsibility to develop players, which you've been given in multiple organizations um, with many, many major league players uh, that you've had. I even had some of your players join my clubs and I remember them. I, I mentioned, I said, Hey, I saw where Steve Luber was your coach and, triple a or double a or whatever and they'd say oh yeah we love lube and they'd go and they'd tell me all about their stories about you so you know your your career has influenced a lot of people including my own well you know the best the best thing about all these players is that uh, in our in our case every four or five years the generation of players changes a little bit and they keep you young and you have to adapt to them to fit in and I think that's something that I've been fortunate I've been able to do, uh, even though the age differences get bigger and bigger. I think the relationship thing has always stayed pretty good with all these players that I've had. And the generational stuff has never gotten in the way. Uh, if it has, it's been a very, very few cases. And, uh, and like I said, you see the generational changes. And as a coach, you have to adapt to that uh, to, do, to certain degrees. And then you also have to draw a line in the sand on other degrees and stuff. So. Uh, it's a good. It's always been a good mix. I felt on my part. Yeah, I think that you know you speak the truth. You always were a guy that spoke the truth. But what your observation was, um, you know, it's it's not, you know, sugarcoating anything doesn't always help if you're not telling the truth. And uh, and you've always been a, a truth teller. Uh, in your fifty years, you know, speaking about the changes in the game, what are some of the things? Um, you know, from development standpoint, uh, changes of the game that some, some surprise, some things that have surprised you or you found out through your career? 
Right. Well, you know, when we came up, the, most of the minor league teams had only one coach. That was the manager. And you had to learn by going out and competing, learning from other players, see what worked for them, try to see what worked, if their stuff worked for you. And uh, you, you had to compete uh, not only in your league, but even with uh, with your teammates as far as uh, seeing who could pitch well or do well and maybe move up and then go on to the next phase. So you had to stay on top of that and not just play out the season because people would pass you if you didn't do that. And uh, that's changed. That's changed significantly where now uh, all the players today have a sense that, uh, that, they're, uh, that they're, they own it, that they're, they own this stuff, that they're entitled to move up no matter how they've done. And, uh, and that's, that's hard to see because you used to have, you had to have a good season to even keep your spot in the rotation or keep your spot in the batting order, uh, much less uh, return next year and not get released. Uh, nowadays, that's not the case necessarily. Uh, you have you see some people with lousy records, ERAs, and batting averages, and they move up during the season and, and not deserve it at all. And next thing you know, they're talking about them as as big league stars when they haven't performed at the lowest levels. That's probably the most significant thing. And even though that's happened, that's with more people coaching them than ever. And and so. The entitled part of it is a problem. It's an obstacle for anybody trying to teach. And uh, if you were lucky enough to have a player who comes to you and he's under your responsibility and he's he's willing to sit there and he's eager to learn so he can be the guy that does well, he can be the guy that moves up, uh, that's kind of the exception nowadays. Most of them have some uh, experience being coached and now they have a comfort zone and they don't want to get out of it. Yeah, I think I think one thing that I always love the stories about these guys that become everyday players in the major leagues and they were afterthought draft or not drafted at all. Um, you know, and if you look at their those guys' work ethic, it's old school. It's what guys had to do to keep their jobs, as you spoke about. You know, some guys just never, you know, you have to go through adversity. You have to learn how to fight. Uh particularly by the time you get to the big leagues. And if you haven't, you're going to have major issues in the major leagues. Yeah, you're not going to stay there any time because you're not well-rounded enough to cope. And, and the big league players find that weakness, and they exploit it, exploit it to death. And pretty soon you're back uh, because you haven't been able to fight your way through those things, fight your way through a slump as a pitcher or a position player. Uh, you've just been moved along no matter how you were doing. And the uh, and you do not have near the number of bats that it takes to get there. You don't have near the number of innings that it takes to get there like they used to. Uh, I, I know guys that are getting to the big leagues that have pitched under 200 innings. Assigned under 200 innings are in the big leagues. And people expect them to do well. Well, history shows that it's not the case. That shows that the people have to get a season and a half or so under, in a row the big leagues before they start stepping forward. And history's dotted with all kinds of guys that are frontline players, all-stars, maybe even Hall of Famers, that their first year or two in the big leagues was one and six with a ADRA and, and two and ten with a 580 ERA. And then next next year they're having a 500 season. Then next year they're winning uh, eight more games and they lose. And now they're being all-stars, perennial 15-year, 20-year players. And, uh, and 
people are ignoring that nowadays. They're just rushing them through, uh, almost using them like disposable tissue. Yeah, I, I did a study of how many innings guys pitched before they were winning pitchers in the big leagues, Hall of Famers. And, uh, you know, you start with Koufax. He pitched 600 and some innings before he was a winning pitcher in the big leagues. Um, you know, it's funny, you, you know, Maddox, a lot of guys that were great major league Hall of Fame pitchers had, they scuffled. They scuffled early in their careers. Will, you got something on that? No, I uh, actually was just uh, present day coaching, uh, having watched Steve coach and uh, when I was coaching and watching him as a scout, uh, the relationship he had with his pitchers, the time he took daily. Um, and one of the trends I see, and I mention on here a lot, is those relationships and that time and and that coaching just doesn't seem to be there. There seems to be more attention to what's going on on an iPad rather than what's going on on the mound. And that, that th those learning moments that you had for all the years you did coaching, Steve, and maybe you could address that, you know, having, you know, been coaching, you know, more, more in the modern era than, than when I did. And I, I just marvel a lot of times there's no interaction between a pitching coach who is the guy who should be giving that wisdom to his pitcher. Well, you know, the, the iPad stuff, uh, the, the analytic stuff, uh, once you learn it as a coach, it doesn't have value. They usually it has value with you uh, confirming stuff you've been telling guys. Uh, you know, you might say your breaking ball needs to be better or the spin axis is a little bit funny because your hand is doing this. Uh, stuff you've already been talking to the guy about for days and weeks, and now it confirms it. You know, they wonder why it's been getting hit or they're not, hitters aren't chasing it. Well, it's not quite that good. Uh, and, and so the analytic stuff can confirm it. Uh, some of the uh, rep soda and the edutronic, those kind of things. But yeah. they, they can't fix them. They can't fix the problem, or the coach has to fix the problem, or the player. And if, if the player doesn't have the trust, if he trusts the analytics more than he trusts what he's hearing, how to fix it, if he doesn't have the composure, he doesn't have the patience, uh, it's not going to come along. They're not going to get enough repetitions, enough innings to work their way through it just blindly. And, uh, you know, you know a, a lot of times, you know, like I see – you know, the iPad gives you the finished result, the axis, the spin axis, the spin rate, the velocity, the shape or whatever. But they're ignoring the foundation that gives you that, which is having a good delivery that you repeat, staying on time, staying balanced, staying directionally good, staying behind the ball. If you build that foundation, then you don't you, you, you all that does is confirm what you're now feeling. And I see so many times guys, you know, they're looking at the iPad, but they're not making the adjustment. This guy just threw 86 pitches in a bullpen and he's still not balanced. He's not directionally good and he's not behind any of his pitches. Well, you know, because of all this, that's why guys like Steve are so valuable because they're teaching techniques and they're, ability to work with the individual and teach them the things that they need to know 
because there's way less time to do that now. Like we've already talked about how fast guys move. You know, I, I will tell you a story. I was, I was coaching in the big leagues. I think I was with the Marlins at the time and everybody was raving about the twins starting rotation at the time. And they had a whole bunch of guys with, you know, nobody had a big arm. Um, they, they could, they all could throw change ups for strikes. And, uh, you know, and I kind of studied them a little bit. I'm going, you know, I always like to look at organizations that have success with pitching and see what they're doing. And the one thing that jumped out when I went into the press guide was that all these guys had 400 to 500 and some innings in the minor leagues before they got there. And they were like the only organization at the time that were doing that. There were a majority of pitchers in the big leagues with other teams that had 200 innings, 250. I mean, hell, I had guys that had like 30 uh, in the minor leagues. I mean, and and the thing is, is that and I get when scouting directors go out there and they acquire the players and player development, people are developing them. But when you get to the major leagues and you don't have the experience and somebody expects a major league coach to turn a guy in to a major league pitcher, um, without having any innings in the minor leagues or without having the toolage of somebody like Steve, it's a really difficult situation unless the guy's ultra special. Right. right. Like you said, you talk, you're probably talking about the Johan Santana and the Radke in that group. And like you said, those guys, they had control. They had, they had control. And, uh, the, and, you know, we, we're fortunate enough to see the history of that kind of stuff. And I see more and more, even some present-day general managers that are not baseball-grounded people. They are uh, Harvard and Yale and these kind of guys that are grounded people. And uh, and so they have these expectations that, and I've, I've talked to some of these people, and they don't know any of the real baseball history of those kind of things. Uh, so... So they're going to make mistakes. They're going to make the mistakes that are shaping the game. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing and we're afraid about, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's like I mentioned to you this off the air. You know, to me, they need people like you, owners, general managers. Uh, they need people like you to advise them on things they don't know about the history of the game and how long it takes to develop somebody and how the patience you have to have. I mean, I had an owner one time tell me uh, he, he had a guy, you know, that he wanted to be great and he didn't make it through like three innings. And I went back in the clubhouse to go to the bathroom and the owner was happened to be down there. And he said, he said, what happened with that guy? And I go, you got to be patient. I said, you got to be patient. I said, he hasn't had any time in the minor leagues. And he says, yeah, that's what everybody tells me. Be patient. And I'm like, well, yeah. I didn't say that to him then. I just walked back to the clubhouse. But I felt like saying, yeah, no shit. You got to be patient. It's real. Well, you know, that's that's the thing. You know, when you sit back and you've never played the game, unfortunately, which a lot of people that are in leadership roles now, they don't realize how hard the game is and that and that patience and resiliency and being able to accept some failures or what ends up building a really good player in, in the long run. And we're, we're, we're not exhibiting any of those things in the development of our players. 
you know, you know, the inmates run the asylum with within the, the entitlement player. You can't you can't reprimand them. They think that the game's easy, and then when they fail, you know, uh, well, you know, what happened? Well, you know, he hasn't failed yet. He's he's developing. We're trying to teach the guy how to play the game. You know, they all get in the game, and as long as we've been in the game, you know, every now and then, as long as we've been in the game, pretty soon you think, well, I've seen it all, and then all of a sudden something happens when you haven't seen it before. And I stopped. I stopped saying that five years ago, yeah. Steve. I started yeah. seeing things that I go, oh, my gosh, I've never seen that. Yeah. What is that? And then if we haven't seen it before, those players have not experienced that stuff at all. So how are they going to react when that happens to them? They haven't seen it at all. They haven't seen a fraction of the stuff we've seen. Right. And so how do they handle it? They don't know how to handle it until they go through a lot of it. And some of it's, some of it's very subtle. It's hey, hey, there's a there's a man on the second base and no outs and, and I want to make a pitch, but this guy's a left hand hitter. I'm pointing three change up to a row and well he gets a ground ball to the right side and the guy goes to third. And when they had a chance to strike the guy out on certain other pitches. Right. And now they give up a they pitch a great game, but they give up two of those and they're out of the game in the fifth because of some subtle things they ignored that didn't even cross their mind. But they have to they have to sit there and recognize those until they in those in those situations. How are they going to recognize them? And and just multiply that times thousands of stuff, thousand things, and that's why you get what we're seeing the fault lack of quality. Right. So, well, that's why you need. That's why these guys need these people like yourself to be around them to to inform them. You know, they think they did a great game. They're satisfied. But how could you have done it better? If nobody tells them that's experienced it and understands it, you know, they're going to go off and they're going to continue on and they're not going to improve because they don't realize that they allowed that runner to move over. They allowed things to happen in the game that they didn't have to allow. But they just thought overall I did well, you know. You know, it's, you know, who you surround yourself is who you are. And if you, that's why, you have good quality people in development because if you have really good people that pay attention to detail and, and have observation skills, they can help somebody realize what's real and what's not and what's truth and what's not. You know, we're talking about the analytics part of it. I'll go and, you know, we'll, we'll watch a guy throw a bullpen and, and no matter how many pitches he throws and you'll, you'll, you'll start looking at the screen a little bit. And you'll know, see a particular pitch and go, no, that's the better one. Well, that guy throws that better one. He might only throw two of those. He might only throw two of those out of the eight or ten that he throws. So if you're only throwing 20% of your good ones, you know, and, and, and maybe recognizing that it is the good one and that why it's the good one, how are you going to get better? Because in a typical bullpen, you're not going to throw 30 curveballs very often, you know. So if you only throw 10 or 12 and two of them are the better ones, better spin, better hand position, whatever it happens to be, better mechanics, uh, the, anal the analytics, you know, like I said, they're a tool to help you recognize, but, but it, the record analytics can't fix the problem for you. And it, it's, it's just like having a different tool in your tool belt. It's not the answer. Right. right. Yeah. And, you know, people don't realize you can't, like you said, there's certain bullpens you can't throw enough pitches to improve a pitch that much. 
that's why you do short range stuff that doesn't put as much tear on your arms and and in in spin drills and stuff like that that you combine that with the side to start to get the feel because if you don't have the feel to adjust just like you said if you don't know what a good one feels like you can't adjust so you throw two out of 20 you're going to throw two out of 20 every time until you realize those are bad ones and this is what i did when i threw a good one you know, I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate back here because uh, I was given pitching lessons around here before pitching lessons were a big deal, even around the country. And one of the things when that happens is the people that come to me, they expect things to get changed, and they and they let me have be the patience for them in that time period. And and the way I've been able to do it, they get a decent amount of throws that I can isolate on a single thing, maybe until they get good enough at that before I go on to the second thing. Sometimes right. it's a delivery, sometimes it's a new grip. And, you know, I'll see some kids. I had someone just last night, 13-year-old kid that never thrown a change up from curveball, and he, he makes a few play and catch throws, and I show him something about a changeup, and his third one was a game-quality changeup, you know. It, it can, can't be that simple, but the kid came there expecting to add to be taught, taught stuff and told stuff and shown stuff. And and that's a huge thing in the mindset of a lot of today's players. A lot of times you got to break through on those guys before they'll accept anything. Steve, you, you, you hit on a key point and we have thousands of grassroots kids globally that listen, talk to them for a second. Um, you know, you hit on, you're talking pitching. A lot of these kids are going to what I would consider throwing coaches where they're chasing max velocity and, these pitching, these throwing coaches are trying to cookie cutter these kids into one style. How do parents tell the difference? And, and what's your thoughts on the max velocity thing as well? Well, I, I mean, I hear that all the time from players. They, they turn around and look at the radar gun. They look on the pitch chart at the end of the game. How hard was I throwing? You know, how hard was I throwing? All that stuff. And, uh, and I say, well, how'd you do in the game? Because your control not any good without control. If you, you have velocity, but you don't have the control, hitters don't care how hard you're throwing. So that's the first thing the player itself, pitcher, has to learn. And the parent, yeah. And if, if even, a, even a sophomore in high school, if he can't throw strikes, that coach can't leave him out there. Pretty soon, he's not pitching. They're using somebody else that can get the ball to replace so that coach has a chance to get through a game. And that, that's, a, that's the simplest part of it right there. And then, as far as cookie cuttering uh, pitches and pitchers and deliveries, uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll see a guy and I'll tell him because I'm going to just evaluate you a little bit before I say anything to you. And I'll watch him. I'll check their arm slot and I'll check their body movements. And and I have a couple ways of doing that. And I'll watch them from different angles. And then I'll tell him, well, your curveball should not be a 12 to sixer. It should have should have a little bit of a or 1.45 to 7 o'clock break because of your arm slot. Uh, the next guy that comes in, he may be a higher arm slot guy, more of a downer, and has less less efficiency throwing a two-seamer. So you have to evaluate those things. If you have some pitcher at 5.10, his curveball is going to be different. Somebody at 6.2, well, most likely, uh, just from the uh, angles that are involved. But if, if, but if they go to somebody who's trying to make everybody, every arm slot, every height, and all that, body physique uh, pitch the same, that coach is not doing his job. 
Yeah, that's well put. I think a lot of our a lot of our parents that listen to they they don't have the experience of this panel right here to to tell the difference. So I think those are nice key distinctions for for that. Will you had something you wanted to jump in on? Yeah, just you know, I mean, I I I think we came up in an era and taught in an era where. You know, to use an analogy, you know, you were you were trying to build a pitcher's foundation with building blocks. You know, uh, you know, we're going to get you over the rubber. We're going to get you online. We're going to get you throwing strikes with your fastball. We're going to get some feel for your changeup, and you work on those building blocks, and you take them in positive positive sessions that you keep moving forward. You have your side session. Where, okay, you know, today you threw 50% good changeups. Tomorrow we're going to come out and play catch, like Mark said, at a short distance, and we're going to keep that feel. Now, you, you as a pitcher start to develop a feel for what you do right and wrong. And again, when you're just chasing that, that final shape, spin, velocity thing only you're losing all those foundational building blocks that build good baseball players. And that's in pitching and hitting uh, the same thing. They're chasing exit velocity and launch angle, but the swings are horrendous and the approach is horrendous in, in most cases. So, you know, I think, you know, you've all hit on it. You can't get it done in a session. You know, we keep going back to patience and knowledge and, you know, I think parents and even players, they, they should look and understand that you correct things one thing at a time, like Steve talked about. You can't, you know, there are some things that you can correct with a delivery, let's say, that will correct a few other things. But it's only one thing that you corrected and it, it had an effect on other things in the delivery that made him uh, time up and find his proper rhythm. But in most cases, you're working on one thing at a time to get the feel and you make it's like that's how you learn everything. Think about it. Anytime you learn anything, you did it in small steps. Yeah. I think what they should look for, parents should look for when they spend the money for these camps and these guys that are these pitching gurus and stuff, when they're jumping all around and they're using all different kinds of technology and they're they're doing different, totally different things every session. Well, guess what? That kid's not going to get any of it because he didn't do it. He's doing it too fast. And he's just trying to justify his existence through through wacko drills and, and, and wacko technology. And, and and we see it all the time on Jeff Fry's broadcast when he when he exposes these gurus for hitting to where they come up with these ridiculous that uh, drills that don't have anything to do with hitting a baseball. It's still the same thing in pitching. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd say, I'd say one thing related to that too, is just like anybody that's gone to any kind of school, college, whatever, pretty soon they, they, they learn how people actually learn the learning curve. And if you, if, just like Mark mentioned, if you have someone who has a particular thing you want to recognize in their delivery that needs work. Okay. so. So you start dealing with that, and you, you describe it, you show them, maybe you put your hands on someone and tell them, try this differently, and you, you let them start trying it. They're, they're, that person's a human being, and they're not going to replicate it consistently. But they need to get some repetitions before they start understanding where their body is in the world and space. And 
each pitch is going to be affected by being in a different space than it's used to. And so until they get some consistency with it, the shape of the curveball is not going to be consistent. The location of the fastball is not going to be consistent. And even, even with the kid, usually I tell the kid, hey, these first five are going to feel strange because they are different. They don't mean they're wrong. And every five or so, it's going to get better. But every five that you do correctly, you're going to get better. Because I've seen it before. I know I know the progression. I know the learning curve. And, and, and that's, that's what a lot of coaches go back to what Mark said about patience. You're, you're instilling the patience in that pitcher to understand that hey, he's going to get better in the next few minutes if he can do this thing. And, and if you're fortunate as a coach, you see some better results within a few pitches. You see it get a little bit better this pitch, the next pitch, the next pitch, then boom, there's a real good one. And you recognize that with that person. And now, okay, now you got them. Now they rec- they kind of recognize. Because until that person recognizes what he's looking for and what it feels like, they don't have a chance to repeat it. And uh, like I see that it doesn't matter what the age of the kid is. It doesn't matter, really, until they recognize it. And, and you have to make a point. You have to make a real point on that. Yeah, it's a, you know, let's, uh, okay, let, let's move to uh, another area, which I know you've got a understanding as I do. Um, you know, conditioning has been taken out of the hands of the pitching coaches totally in today's game. And uh, what were some of the positive things you feel were important when you were doing more of the conditioning work with them? Well, the best thing is you could tell. Uh, after, after when you were doing it with him, you could tell what kind of shape the guy was in after just doing it a little bit. You could see the guys that uh, that put out a little bit. You could see the guys that got tired. You could see that they needed a little bit more distance or a little more le- less more quick stuff. And you saw their agility. And the other thing was you could gauge their endurance. And you can't get the same you can't get the same endurance, in my opinion. Uh, sitting on a bike inside in the air conditioning and it's 68 degrees uh, as opposed to being outside and doing some stuff in the 80 degree weather and breaking a sweat and having to have the mental discipline to run a little bit of distance, whether it's just a a couple laps or it's several laps or so many minutes. Uh, The kids today almost never run that way where they have to have the discipline to to know I got to go over this many minutes and go get it done without somebody just standing right on top of them. And, and That's, a great, that's the, a great comment, Steve. And this is where they miss on it. They don't miss – they miss the mental discipline it takes to pitch in the big leagues. They miss – the conditioning guys, a lot of them miss on that. And that's why, you know, hey, sure, there may be some stuff that we did with our pitchers or even ourselves that probably wasn't like the greatest thing to do. But, but sometimes that mental discipline overrides the physical activity you're doing because it's going to reflect your mentality in a game. And that's the one thing I could tell by that. I could always tell players that were mentally tough, particularly when I was training them. You know, I, I challenge these kids now to do 20 hard foul pole to foul poles. <laughs> Like like we used to do, and then and then do a hundred pickups, which were a bitch, and then do a hundred sit ups, 
and do that the day after you start and then kind of keep that routine in between your start. But that made us in much better pitching shape. And, you know, one of the sad things I see now, Steve, and I'm sure you noticed it, is how many players are getting out of shape in season. Players are getting heavy. There's a lot of food in the clubhouses. You know, my my nephew works for another organization. He said their one clubhouse was like Golden Corral. The kids would come in and start eating at noon, and they would they would eat eat all day long in the clubhouse. And they don't go out on the field and do anything. And you see young kids that are are carrying extra weight that they shouldn't be carrying at a young age. Well, somebody made this comment. You know, mass mass equals gas. Well, we know better than that. Right. You know, and that, but that saying is hanging around. I hear it even with some of the high school kids I know around here. I go, that ain't the case. In case if you can't direct it, move it, it don't matter. And I see a lot of guys that are big and strong that couldn't pitch at all, and, and that were just big guys. And they they think oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get big over the winter. Well, I get bigger and stiffer is what they do. How about Ron Guidry and Pedro Martinez that weighed about about 170 pounds, and Sandy Koufax weighed about 175 pounds. Those guys had plenty of gas, and they finished what they started as well. They had the great legs. They had the great legs. Yeah, exactly. It's I, you know, you know, part of it. Part of it is you know you're training for five plus innings. You know, like you're not trading for the game. I mean, pitchers are settling for just keeping their team in the game now. Right. Some of the best pitchers of the game are not allowed to go deep into the game to solidify a chance to win the game. That's what a starter does. If anything, he solidifies a chance to win the game to where you don't have to turn it over to three or four relievers, maybe one in the past. I mean, we know this has weakened weakened the product, but do you think you could ever get back to where we could we could get enough people to 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 believe pitchers should get deeper in the games and train to get deeper in the games? Well, the the, the mindset. The mindset that that happens is going to have to be some owner that that realizes a little bit of history and say, "Hey, why am I paying this starter the big money when he's throwing less innings than they've ever thrown?" And and, and they're going to have to sit there and say, "Hey, I sign you. I, I sign you to this contract. I expect you to pitch deep in the game. That's what it's going to take. And, and it's going to take somebody that actually comes, wakes up, and smells a coffee on that thing alone." So why would you spend more money for them to throw less? And on top of that, the manager should have in his mind, if the guy's a starter, it's usually because we think he's better than somebody who's number 12 or 13 in your bullpen. But by taking him out, you're intentionally making opportunity for your 12th or 13th best pitcher, which (laughs) makes no sense in any fashion. You know, the the other thing is – when are owners and, and management going to go look at all the protectionism, look at, you know, well, we don't want our players doing too much on the field. We're doing all this in an effort to keep them on the field, yet they're playing less games and they're getting hurt more than they've ever gotten hurt. I mean, you know, it, it isn't that the definition of insanity to keep doing what we're doing? And, and, you know, I, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. The, the number of injuries are, are staggering. I'm down here in spring training right now. Every day there's a new pitcher that's being shut down. 
Well, who, it's, it, it's just crazy because the players have more passion. Hey, I got to go get a lift in. I got to go get a lift in. Right. They're more passionate about going in and get a lift in than they are going out on the field and throwing. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, this is what gets me. And, you know, I have to speak from the major league side of it. You know, when I was a pitching coach and I had guys throwing more innings in spring training, staying on a four-man rotation through freaking four games, I mean, through four starts till they got five innings in, um, then we'd, when we'd stretch it to five, five, uh, five-day rotation, um, I had very few injuries, you know, and that was a whole career of how many times I had rotations that, you know, when I had major league starting pitchers in a rotation, they made it wire to wire and sometimes all the way to the World Series. So, I mean, this can be done without being over cautious. You just have to have the right eyes on them and see when a guy's tired and see when a guy has special stuff on a given day. Allow him to ride, ride it out because that's also a big boost to your mentality. When you're going out there, going deeper into the game and throwing shutouts and getting wins, you want to do it again. You don't want to go five and fly. Um, but so many of these guys are getting satisfied because they're not allowed to get those feelings. They're not allowed to be able to be put in that situation. And and I'm with you guys. I, you know, when you've got good eyes watching you, experienced people, I know how to keep somebody from getting hurt. Sure, there's injuries. Sure, things happen. But I always look at it, what kind of injury was it? Is it a leg injury? Is it a hip? Is it a oblique, which we never had, I will, I will tell you. That we never had oblique injuries until we started using, using uh, different types of conditioning systems. But uh, anyway, I just I had to get that off my you chest. Know, you, you know, Mark, we're nine days out. I've had one starter go four innings. Um, and I know you and I have talked about this numerous times, how many times you would use your, your one-inning relievers two innings. And I haven't had any one – I haven't seen a one-inning reliever go – two innings in spring training since Mariano Rivera used to do it all the time because he wanted to be tired that a little bit tired that second inning for when he was going to save the game for the fourth day in a row. So he knew how to pitch. That was all part of your organizational, uh, your organization of spring training. You had your middle relievers, which you allowed to go three innings, maybe once or twice in a deal. And you had all your back end bull kind guys all did a two inning outing. They all did back to back outings. They all did stuff to prepare themselves for the game. You know, the first month of the major league season now is still like a, a, a spring training. Oh, yeah. Cause they don't let these guys go. They, Oh, your pitch limits up. Really? You shouldn't have a pitch limit when you break the season. This is major league baseball. These fans pay to see professional players play the game, not bail out after four innings because your pitch counts too high. It's and just, then, it's absurd. You know, you, you remind me of a great story. And uh, being from where I live, uh, back my, one of my idol back in the day was Bob Gibson. Okay. So I wasn't with the Cardinals, but I knew somebody that was, and they were in camp when Gibson was there. And they said that, that he, he reached a certain point where, It'd, it'd come time to be take PFP, and he'd take PFP and stuff. And then, 
and like everybody else and do his PFP. And then, uh, and then later on, they would go to run. He'd go on his own to run and they would let him condition himself because he had been through the war several times. He knew how to get ready for the season. And they even got to where they didn't care if he went out through 29 pitches in the first inning. He's going out for the second and the third and the fourth. But it's his time to do it for. And they even got to where during the season, if he started off the year a little slow, they'd leave him in the game. He'd be down he'd be down five to two in the fifth and his time to bat would come. They'd let him hit. And he'd hang around for the seventh and bat again. And next thing you know, it's five to five or six to five and he's leading. And you're not going to take the ball away from him. Because he was pitching his way into shape, into game sharp shape. Because they knew that over a season, he would have a great season. And nowadays, somebody did like that. Even some star, oh, they would have all kinds of things. They would have him on the DL list and this and that. He would never get in pitching shape. And, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, I think back, and, and I, I only played eight and a half years, so I had eight spring trainings, and I was a starting pitcher. And I believe every spring training, and back then we used to only have, what, four weeks, <laughs> three and a half weeks of spring training. And then we started, um, if I didn't get the seven innings, which I did every time in my last start, and I think I like five times through complete games, my first game. Uh, and, and, you know, I didn't have arm injuries until I, hurt my arm because I pitched with a pulled hamstring. It wasn't because of how I was throwing. It was because I did something I never should have done and should have told the trainer. But it's 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 insanity now when I, you know, I, we're, we're winding down here and, and, and I'm still seeing seven, eight pitchers a day. Well, you, you're not going to see anybody throw more than five innings in a spring training game. No. And, we, and they, you know, and I'm going back a long time. Guys used to finish their last start was a nine inning. Maybe their last two starts was nine innings. Um, you know, it doesn't happen anymore. I remember one time I was in big league camp and I got cut the last cut and I had to go to minor league camp and I was supposed to pitch opening day in AAA. Well, I'd been pitching out of the bullpen in the, in the big league camp. So I hadn't stretched out at all. So I told the manager, I said, First in it, first game, let me start. I'll throw th- three innings. The next game, I'll throw seven, and don't take me out until I've completed the three and then the seven innings. And I remember I got bashed for three innings. The next outing, I went out there and I kept continued to get hit hard for about three innings. And all of a sudden, I found my rhythm and timing. Everything was there, and I finished the seven innings. And I'll never forget my first start that year in the big in AAA. I lost one to nothing on a complete game, and and I I did that to myself. I, I knew I had to do that to prepare. Yeah, you know, now everybody's kid gloves. They will they'll fire any any instructor that even remotely tries to do something that 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 doesn't appear to be protecting the guy. You know, Jack McKeon used to, we, I'll never forget this. I loved it. I hadn't done it before, but I learned it from Jack. We were, you know, we had Josh Beckett and, and Dontrell Willis. I mean, we, we had AJ Burnett. We had all these guys and big, I mean, major league arms. I mean, these guys were some of the best staff I ever had stuff wise for sure. And we were in spring training and I remember Dontrell was pitching one day 
and he was supposed to pitch like three innings that day. And uh, he like, you know, you know how you schedule it out. You have, oh, you're going to follow Dontrell and each reliever's told, you know, you'll probably come in in this inning or whatever. So Dontrell gets through three innings and he'd throw in about 18 pitches. <laughs> and and uh, Jack leans over to me and says, Mark, let him go out for the fourth inning. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah, he's throwing 18 innings. I said, we're getting our starters ready to start. Right. And he just think about it. If you have to go pull him during the inning, that's fine. If he gets through it, it'll be great, four shutout innings. And I said, then, you know, down the road when he's supposed to go five or six and he has a bad outing, he's already gone through four. Right. He says, he says, so it's a mental lift in spring training to know you did that. And it's also conditioning you for the season. And that combined with pitching guys on four days through five innings, got all the guys ready. We were throwing more complete games than anybody at the start of the season because of it. Well, like you said, too, just like the, 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 they, nowadays they even start off spring training way different than we used to. They don't they don't go on an every other day basis like we used to, and and they they spread that out and, and they one inning, one inning, two innings, two or three innings, three innings. Finally, the guy might get up to seventy five pitches maybe before he leaves spring training maybe, but no guarantee, and he should be in that much quicker. And they don't realize that every day you add to the cycle kills all your guys off of one rotation at the end of spring training. That one rotation, which really gets that foundation laid pretty good. But once you start adding that, uh, there's days that you go to spring training more days than ever and throw less innings than ever, which actually makes no sense either. And, and theoretically, today's pitchers have done more uh, observation observation of workouts over the offseason than ever. Sending video and FaceTime, FaceTime stuff to people. Uh, watch people. Coaches able to watch guys in January from the, you know, from their home because the guys send a video of the workout they just had. They know these guys have been thrown, but they go slower than ever. You know, it makes no. That's another thing that makes no common sense. No, it, it doesn't Steve, make sense. You know, Steve, you just said something. You know that we have a longer spring training than ever. We throw less innings than ever. We have our minor league and major league seasons, and guys are throwing less innings. And I think you and I, Mark, know the only way to become a better pitcher is to pitch more. <laughs> so, so maybe that's the reason why nobody knows how to pitch. You know, our prospect relievers throw forty innings in the minor leagues now on a on a scripted twice a week, bi-weekly, you, you can use them an inning one day and maybe two innings another day. And that's that's ridiculous. The starters never go more than five innings. They get yanked with no hitters. And I've seen kids get yanked that have a no hitter and 68 pitches after five innings. And I go, what, what are we doing here? Well, how, how about, how, how about the, the guy that he's one of your prospects, he gets hurt during the season, but it's more of a leg injury. It's not really an arm injury. He gets rehabbed. He pulled a groin or whatever. He gets back on the mound the last month of the season, pitches his starts. They extend him out. And then they shut him down at the end of the year. Yeah. That guy should go to winter ball. Yeah. Right. You know, like he's their best prospect. You want him to pitch in the big league sooner than later. You better get him to get some reps. Right. And you know what? They allow the player to make the decision. 
Right. They they used to say you you're going if you want to make the big league team. Now they say, oh you don't oh the agent says he doesn't really want to go. Well, tough tough. We're paying you, man. Right. You need to pay. Yeah, you know, you know, an employee. They, your, your employer asks you to do it. You should have to do that. That, like you said. And the other thing is this: at some point, some point, some some doctor said, "Hey, if you if you only pitch uh, eighty innings this year, you should only up your innings by next year by twenty percent." That's only yep. sixteen more innings. That means next year you're already shut down in at the end of July, or, or sooner. And, and so, how do you function a team doing that with stuff? You know, how do you? How do you do that? And then we still have more injuries than ever. It's yeah. Still- well, you, what happens is you end up managing the early part of the season and don't let them have that many innings so they can pitch into the playoffs. That's what you end up doing. Yeah. If you know, I've been there. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, how about you know, go real quick. You know, like these guys are making tremendous amounts of money, like Degrom and guys like this. You know, like and you made this statement yourself. You go look what he's done in the last couple of years. Right. How many innings he's pitched the last couple of years. And these these owners still give him the money. Yeah. They it's give him the money. Time. Hey, I see Scherzer, uh, you know, I see uh, Verlander. That made, they make sense. Those guys are horses. They're warriors. You, know, you pay those guys, at least they've got a track record recently that they've done it. Right. If you haven't pitched a lot of innings and you're giving a guy a lot of money and he's had a lot of injuries, you're really opening yourself up for 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 bad news. You know, you know, Mark, you just mentioned winter ball and watch a little bit of the the Puerto Rico and the passion and the energy of the Dominican Puerto Rico game last night, the excitement, and we all played and coached or whatever over in winter ball, the passion and stuff. And these kids, you know, we're not, you know, kids need to go back and play winter ball where it matters, where you're, where, where you're not some entitled guy who's going to get his extra 12 innings or whatever or get your extra 40 at-bats out there in the fall league and, or these, these faux instructional leagues that last a week. Go play baseball. And no, go that, that, that's not going to happen. No. They're just not going to allow them to do it. Even like I said in the scenario scenario earlier, when I said send some guy that hasn't gotten his innings in down to down to down to winter league, they do do that. And the guy threw three starts, and they sent him home. He goes home. He oh, I, he did some extra work down in down in winter ball. Three games. Are you nothing, kidding me? Nothing. When a guy's supposed to half a season, no. they just don't want to do it. The agents have gotten involved in it. Doctors have gotten involved in it. People that have never done it put their eyes on it. You know, that's why pitching coaches that are trained, they we have an eye for this stuff. We uh, we know when a guy's putting himself in a chance to get injured. We get to, we know how to get him out. We know when he's going to gain more mentally to leave him in. You know, that's the aspect that people just don't don't know anymore. You know, winter ball is where you. Is the only place that's more like the big leagues where you're trying to win every day, and when you don't perform, you get released down there. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And 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 when you don't perform in the big leagues, you get sent down. So why and not experience that and develop guys who know how to compete with passion and play the game? 
the way they still are in the islands. That, that, that you know, to me, it's it's yeah. sad. To- well, we, Steve and I played against each other even in winter ball in Venezuela, and and you know, I was watching the game yesterday, that Puerto Rican game, yeah. and I'm going, that was winter ball. Oh yeah, because we had all kinds of major league star players playing. Plus, we had the best yeah. prospects playing. Andre Dawson played in Winter League that year. You know, like he was a young kid. We had Willie Randolph. We had all these guys playing. They ended up being Major League everyday players and stars that played in Winter Plus Davey Concepcion and Mad- Manny Trump, Mad- all these all Mad- Mattingly and Rod Carew and the, these guys. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was unbelievable. Remember the game I pitched one time, Steve, the 15-inning game? <laughs> you were held – he was on the other team. And every inning I went out there after nine, he had a, he had a card. He would write the inning and stand out in front of the dugout and hold it up. I laughed at it. Wow. <laughs> you, you serious? You serious? Maybe focus. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. hey, okay, let me let – me, okay, I got two things – two more questions. One is, give us a little bit about what you tracked as far as game time, which is, which I think the, the listeners will find interesting. Well, we were talking about it before, and nowadays, nowadays all the TV networks are pushing about the game times. Game times, oh, they're going too long. They're going too long. Well, this is that's twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three. They're 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 doing all this gimmick stuff nowadays. Well. In 1992, I was a AAA pitching coach, and our minor league director had the organizational meetings, and, and he actually asked us about were there any individuals that worked particularly slow or some hitters that took a lot of extra time doing stuff. And so that season, I started keeping track of people that uh, real slow get into the box or pitchers that work particularly slow. And, and, and I also took track of something else. And, and that whole league, there were seven players that were pretty slow that all the players complained about. And one of them was on our team, and we worked on that. And then the others were out throughout the league, you know. We, we complained about them. We noticed them. But I started keeping track of the number of times that we would, the inning went in, we would run out to the mound, we would throw our warm-up pitches, we'd be ready to pitch, and we had to wait for the third base umpire to say, hold on, they're still doing the commercial on the radio. And so I started keeping track of the number of times. And by early June, there were 324 times that we had to wait to start the inning, to actually start pitching, waited on the commercials. That was 1992. So here we are 30 years later. They, could, they didn't recognize then or don't care that the game would move along faster if it wasn't for waiting for the commercials. And... Uh, you can handle the stuff with players work slow very easily. You can sit there and just earmark them and say, hey, we tracked this guy. He's taking 29 seconds. And I even remember when this started because the Oklahoma State coach at the time, uh, he had a certain way of teaching hitting. He told his players, step out of the box every pitch, take two practice swings, put your right foot back in, hold your arm up to the umpire, get your left foot in, get ready to bat every pitch. And so nowadays, that's what you see with every player. They step out every pitch, every pitch. And it, there was the period the young person were trying to make guys keep a foot in the box, but they don't do that anymore. But they still let players call timeout all the time. Uh, so the pitcher can be ready and the player can step out of the box and they give them time all the time. 
but now they're doing the rules where if the pitcher can't do that, he gets a ball called. So they're gimmicking the whole thing toward the hitting, toward the hitting. But the one thing they're not doing is they're not they're not harassing the guys that strike out all the time. And that's where the shift rules have come up uh, now because they're trying to open it up for the hitting. Uh, but as long as you pay for the guys who are striking out, if you quit paying for them, they'll quit striking out. They'll use the whole field. You, the shifts won't be able to be used. Right. And the game will move along. There'll be different action. You still hit home runs. You'll still run the bases. But the batting averages will come up. Those guys will use the whole field. And as pitchers, we all know the hardest guy to get out was a guy that will hit the ball all over the field. Right. So uh, those, those cycles have come to fruition of, of, of the way they coached hitting a long time ago when he was the head coach of Oklahoma State and the holiday. And now everybody does what the, he was doing. And it slowed the game down in a different way. And now the game slowed down, slowed down, and here we are. And now they're making gimmicks to try to change it instead of saying, hey, get in the box. Get in the box, I'm going to call a strike on you. You know, and yeah. uh, that would be an easier solution. It wouldn't be as forced, forced on people. Uh, you can give them some warning. You can even sit there and start taking a little bit of their money where they were taking extremely long. Uh, but you give them a chance to change their behavior, you know. Yeah, it's like pitch calling. It's another way of slowing the game down because you don't teach the people to call the game. You know, these guys don't know what to do. They're getting messages from the bench. That all takes time. The fear of, of the, the technology that's come into play on trying to hide what you're throwing is just so absurd to me. It's not even funny that they've got all this technology and all these people involved in technology to call pitches that nobody will know. So nobody will know what pitch is coming when, if you work the game fast enough, they don't have time to even relay a pitch to somebody. Mark, could you, Mark, could you hang on a second? I got to look at my card, how I have to respond to that. (laughs) We used to know how to take care of people stealing signs. We did. We take care of it. We understood. We took, we took care of it and it wasn't an issue. And nowadays, they got all this stuff going on. Made it, they made the problem bigger than the solution, worse than the problem. Right. right. Well, you know, there were times, I, I mean, I can remember a specific time I was pitching. And, and at that time, the hitters used to peek to see where, at the yeah. last second, to see what side of the plate the catcher was sitting on. And so they would try to get location because if it was away, then they knew they could dive. They didn't know if it was going to be a breaking ball or a fastball, but they knew it was supposed to be away. So they knew to cover that part of the plate. Well, I saw a guy peeking, and I told the catcher between innings, for his ne- I said, next time he comes up, I want you to telegraph and set up as early as you can away. And I said, I'm throwing a fastball in. I said, just so you know, you can get back there. And that guy, sure enough, the guy peaked again. And I undressed that guy like a pretzel. (laughs) That guy got out of the way of the ball, ended up on his back. And I walked down there to get the the ball that had gone to the backstop. And I said, do you still want to peak? And I looked him right in the eye and I walked back to the mound. Nice. Problem cured. Exactly. Problem cured. No doubt. No, no doubt. 
Exactly. You know, that, that, that it's the same thing as when you walk off the mound and talk to the guy leading off second base if you think he's doing something. You know, hey, you're going to get somebody hurt, buddy. Yeah, yeah. That's it. You know, something might get away from me. You know, of course, you'll, you'll get a lawsuit if you say that now, if they record right. it. Right. Because now you threaten somebody and you'll have – now not only you have the gurus of baseball on your ass, you'll have the, the, the lawyers on your ass. It's just uh, – It's just he fight the game that way. Yeah, they have. They have. Well, you can't take somebody out. We got one, we got one catcher that got hurt really bad at home plate after a hundred and some years of playing the game um, because catchers were taught how to take a blow – how to set up for a throw from the outfield if they were going to get a collision. Um, guys weren't taught that. They get hurt, so they changed the rule. And now they have something else the umpires could screw up by not knowing whether they were uh, avoiding the uh, catcher. Yeah, and the catcher still blocks the plate all the time, and they don't ever call him out for blocking the plate. No, never do. Never do. It's just it's crazy taking guys out at second base. Best shortstops in the world played for freaking 15, 20 years, and uh, they they knew how to get out of the way of a guy coming in. But uh, we, we've, given Steve for, we've had Steve for almost an hour. Got any last questions? I know I've got one more. I've got, I can't let him off without asking this one. Go ahead, Dave. I'm you good. You got it, Dave. You got final question. Oh, sweet. All right, well. Well, first, when you talk about the second baseman, I gave a clinic the other day and I hopped at the end of when I was turning two to show the kids. And I mean, except for my son that was there, like, what, what are you doing that for? Why are you hopping? I said, that's, that's instinct. It's called self-preservation right there. But uh, last question, Steve, for you. I can't let you off the show. We only have 14,000 uh, subscribers so on 70 countries. So I'll mute Mark so he can't refute this. You roomed with Mark on three different occasions. Give, give us a Mark Wiley roommate story. Uh, well, uh, Mark and I, had, Mark and I, one time, uh, we started thinking we're on a team and we had the great kangaroo court. He was, he was a judge and I was the one keeping track of the fines. And so he had the wig, he had the gavel, the whole thing. And we were in Syracuse and we had the great kangaroo court and someone would bring up a bogus case and he would throw it out or and we'd have the vote and all that stuff. And so, uh, so we had the great kangaroo court. We find the manager. We find the trainer. We find, you know, 50 cents here and a dollar there. And we had a great slideshow at the end of the year because he and I went around the league and took pictures and made slides. And then we in, I emceed part of them and he emceed part of them. And one of one of Mark's uh, slides that showed up was, you know, here's Mark after here's Mark after, after having a rough start on May, May 18th. And there's a picture of Mark with his foot put through a plastic bin that you iced your arm in. You know, so that was the slide that we popped up at the slideshow for everybody to see, you know. So, uh, but that just showed his passion for his performance and stuff. And but, but we had a great time doing the slideshow, had a great kangaroo court. It was, it was some stuff in there with the price list that we still talked about just a couple of days ago and still can remember, remember like it was yesterday. And, uh, and, then, and Steve, still, Steve still has the slideshow. <laughs> and there were a lot of ma and there's a lot of major leaguers on that slideshow uh, that were were viewed on the slideshow, like where they lived, what they did. Not, without them in it, just uh, pictorials of what made them look funny. Yeah, we staged know? we staged some of the stuff. It was it's priceless. 
Willie, yeah. Willie Upshaw was, was on our team and he was our first baseman and, and he was always talking about Plano, Texas. Well, I'd never been to Plano, Texas, you know, and he was saying this and that about Plano, Texas. And so Steve and I went out in the country outside of Syracuse and we found this old dilapidated trailer out in the middle of the woods. And we took a picture of it. And on the slideshow, we said, Oh yeah, we, we, we asked the, uh, the city of Plano to send us their, the, the civic center, uh, a photo so we could put it on our shot and we put that thing up there. That's the kind of stuff we did. <laughs> well, we, we, we appreciate the, the story say, Steve, thanks for sharing that. And I think you, you'll, you'll have to share some deeper ones off the air there, but the kangaroo court, we may have to get those slides for social media to put on our audience would love it. But guys, Mark and Will, thanks again. Wiley and Will, a day, a day at the yard, common sense pitching never disappoints. Steve Luber, great guest today. Um, and to our audience out there, remember 14,000 subscribers. Let's keep jacking that thing up. Download, listen, like, subscribe. Find us on your favorite streaming app, whether it's Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. We don't care. We'll keep bringing you great content every week, and I'll keep responding to everybody on Facebook. I think I told you guys over 500 questions today. That's a record. Um, two, two great shows today with, you know, giving Steve on the back end here. But Wiley and Wilk, a day at the yard, common sense pitching. We're out. Guys, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. And do it anytime. You're great, Steve. Awesome job, Steve.